This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. I am Ryan Pitkin, and we have the return of co-host Justin LaFrancois. Yeah, I like to sit in every now and then. Justin gets super gets focused in on certain article topics or certain podcast topics and he's like i'm there i'm in yeah but that last one i was like that and i showed up too high and i didn't say (laughs) even remember the the last one you came to it was uh it was with um oh deb not no it uh, was uh leandra leandra yeah and juan all right well here we go take two (laughs) um and today we have a special guest lorenzo Steele jr uh, an artist here in Charlotte that we have recently covered, um, the founder of Behind These Prison Walls or- nonprofit organization. And I'm just going to let you sort of take the reins in, ter- in sort of describing what that means, what that is, and what the work that you do. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to um, thank God. I'd like to thank your, your show for allowing me this uh, platform to speak. Um, like you said, my name is Lorenzo Steele Jr. I'm a former New York City Department of Correction Officer. From 1987 to 1999, I worked in the nation's most violent adolescent jail in New York City on Rikers Island. While I was a correction officer, I'm also a uh, born a photographer. So I used to carry my camera in uniform throughout the jail, just taking images of common areas, uh, structures, jail, um, people getting hurt and um, cut, sliced, and you know all things that um, that happen day to day when an individual is is incarcerated. And I left the job after 12 years, believe it or not. Um, just couldn't take it anymore. But um, after reflecting, after I left, I realized that God had his hand on me because I had, I had experience and I had uh, stories that I have personally experienced and seen others experience behind those walls. And I immediately um, started going into the public school system in New York City. I became a vendor. And um, actually, when I left New York City, I had over 15 years experience as a vendor in New York City, working in um, Title I schools, the economically challenged neighborhoods in New York City, those neighborhoods that would populate those 72 um, prisons in in, in, um, in New York State. Right, right. And you know, the reason was just um, I had tons of information that wasn't on television. You know, um, the children definitely wasn't reading about it. And so that made me go into the public school to get them the information to possibly help keep them out of jail, to to help them fully understand the realities of poor choices and, you know, poor decisions and uh, where they could end up if they don't, um, you know, basically do the right thing and, you know, abide by the laws of, um, you know, the laws of the state. Right. And just sort of rewinding a little bit, I believe uh, Heather Mims was the one who reported on the story that we just published in Queen City Nerve last week. Fantastic article. And, yeah. Uh, and, I was, yeah, I was very happy with it and interested enough to obviously do this podcast. I was like, I need to talk to this man. Thank um, you. <laughs> Tell so Heather. Hello, Heather. <laughs> I believe it was Heather who, uh, I mean, it was obviously Heather who reported that you, I believe, had a criminal justice degree. That's what you went to school for? Yes. I just, believe it or not, um, at that time... 1987 to 1999, you didn't need a uh, degree Mm -hmm. in corrections, um, police, or fire department. So I didn't get my degree until five years ago. Oh, okay. So this was more recent. Criminal justice. So Mm -hmm. I've experienced the system. Then I said, you know, let me go. Let me go to college and get a degree Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to to go along with it, Mm -hmm. to support it. 
And um, that's what I did with that. So what was it that you were doing before um, getting the job at Rikers Island? Uh, thing, before applying for I that? I went on to Rikers at 22 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, five, let's say 6'2", 159 pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but before I did that, I was a, um, I was a para, uh, teacher's aide mm-hmm. in, in um, uh, the New York City public school. So I've always, you know, looking back, reflecting on my life, I've always been have a passion for working with children. Right. And, you know, that led into, you know, um, just going into the Department of Corrections just because they was just paying more right. than, than a teacher's salary at that time. And is that what sort of led to them assigning you or your own choice maybe as in terms of working in the juvenile detention in the youth center? No, you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You go where they need you. And my age, at that time, um, adolescence were classified 17 to 21 years old. So I was 22. So, you know, they were saying, you know, I would never go in there because I'm so close to the age of adolescent and right. and the adult. But, you know, um, you know, God works in mysterious ways. I, w- I was there. Right. So, um, you yeah, know, I noticed I, that it was a hell of a thing to fact check in that article because things at Rikers Island have changed so much yeah. and all mm-hmm. the different, not to mention that I, I don't think I realized until editing this article that there are 12 different facilities there. Yes. All holding different uh-huh. All different type different. of population, yes. yes. Um, but just trying to dis- just trying to fact check, you know, who goes where is mm-hmm. it's all different now than yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different world. Mm-hmm. I was there without before the cameras even came into the um, into the to Rackers Island into the uh, facilities mm-hmm. in the in the borough jails. Right. So but it's a whole we, different world. Do we consider it a, a better situation that's going on there or just a different situation? <laughs> it depends on different doesn't always mean better. If you're a detainee because Rikers Island is this a detention center. Yeah. It's right. there until you go to court if you're bailed out or Which um, is crazy because of because of Rikers' uh, reputation you would think that it is the the final right. place. Mm-hmm. Not not like the jail where you're held until you uh, For some, it is the final place. Well, yeah, that's too, yeah. <laughs> the violence, the day-to-day violence. Oh, yes, is, yes. It's, it's un- unimaginable. Mm-hmm. I, ju- I just meant through Basically. the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. not yeah. the actual No, I know, because like pop yeah. culture and things would just have you believing, even just growing up listening to hip-hop, like I would just have thought, and I did think naturally that Rikers Island was a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but So you were just, uh, interesting that you just said that this before any cameras came in, because then you obviously brought your own. Mm-hmm. Was that... Uh, a cameras meaning videos. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Surveillance. Yes, gotcha, surveillance. gotcha. Uh-huh. Um, do, do you think there's just like pools of photographers that came no, in just daily thought, now? Well, no, because, yeah, I don't know. I was just trying to fight for a segue, you know? Anyway, yeah. you can't. <laughs> but when you did bring your camera in, in terms of using it, was it part of a, a was it part of a, a job in terms no. of documenting assaults and things? No, it was just it was just something that you know like I said I was you know born a photographer there was two other photographers um the infamous Jamel Shabazz Oh right oh, yeah and, we did a story um, on him right yeah, just I recently interviewed that was, him. that's my mentor we worked oh, okay. together <laughs> in the same jail mm-hmm. Oh wow he carried his camera I had my camera and there was another officer officer DeSantis mm-hmm. and um you know we would show the images of each other and you know just positive you know mm-hmm. um you know feedback and and like that but um yeah I worked with the was, Jamel Shabazz Was there any pushback from administration on no. you no not yeah. at that time at that time it was it was it was almost you like know I didn't life. go to college until 
later on in life and I went online. Mm-hmm. It was almost like high just being in high school yeah. in college. Mm-hmm. You got your buddies, <laughs> we play ball, we we drink, we hang out in the bars and it was just it was just one big happy family and at what, that time. What about the relationship um, both professionally and creatively with the subjects of these articles when you I mean I know you also shot guards but you also shoot folks who were incarcerated there. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a consent issue, or, no. or did they check your photos out, or anything no, like no. that? No, no. I just, you know, just w- walk around. I can go to the receiving room and mm-hmm. smile, click, <laughs> smile, click. Go down to mm-hmm. a solitary confinement unit, and you know the detainees were there, and I just, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, just take the pictures. And we'll get to the point of where what you've done now with that work because it's mm-hmm. quite that's quite the story. But just in terms of now that you display these works and they can be as old as thirty years old, have you ever run into any? Obviously, you're in in a entirely different state down the mm-hmm. coast, but have you ever like reconnected with anyone who was incarcerated there at the time, maybe that you can share a photo with or that doesn't know that there's photos out there? Not yet, mm-hmm. but talking to Jamal Shabazz, mm-hmm. um, he's just on a whole different level. Right. He has photos that he has, people have called him up. Right, because he's known said, for his New York City just yeah, documentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was that. I was that adolescent. Uh, matter of fact, in your housing unit that you took a picture of, I'm doing fine. I'm a family man now, and you know, thank you for the words of wisdom mm-hmm. that that kept me sane, you know, in a violent, you know, a violent atmosphere. Right. So, um, I don't want to work off any assumptions here, but it se- certainly sounds to me through Heather's reporting that you had a certain aspect. Uh, I don't want to document anything, but a certain aspect of PTSD that came with from this job would you, mm, would you that's the thing I have to I did a little research mm-hmm. but give me your definition of PTSD I would just say sometimes I think it's very wide ranging and I'm not an expert whatsoever mm-hmm. but I think it, the fact that it has stuck with you the way it ha- what, the way it has yes. that's why I said I don't want to diagnose it can mm-hmm. be called any number of things but when did it really start to sort of hit you as like mm-hmm. uh, it certainly seems as it was Stressing you out to say the very least. When not, did it sort not of not really stressing me out? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a '60s baby, mm-hmm. and you know, for some strange reason, and even talking to Jamel Shabazz, something with Vietnam mm-hmm. as being a soldier, and looking at ourselves as soldiers in a war, and battle scars. It could be mentally, it could be physically, but when you leave that atmosphere that war you take that you bring that home with you right you know because um i could talk to somebody that i don't work i work with for 12 years and we on the phone for five or six years nobody wants to hang up mm-hmm. you know, hang up to <laughs> hang up the telephone but you know i gotta get off i gotta get I off five to six years <laughs> no i mean five, five six hours, hours. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> five or six hours you might be talking about a record yeah. here but um then you start to realize that they're sharing something that they had to get out. Mm-hmm. I talked to a buddy, and um, man, we was we was talking almost all night, and he was saying that he couldn't shut off. You know, if you can imagine um, going into a hostile environment, you cannot show fear. So there's something in you that has to. It's almost like putting on your your Superman cape. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be Superman, a little frail, but when you put that Superman cape on, it could be the uniform and and the shield. You know, you have to go in there and and just put on a front like you're not afraid. Mm-hmm. And because if they detect 
any type of fear in you that they'll they'll take advantage of it and manipulate you. So imagine doing that for 12 years, 20 years, 25, and trying to shut it off. So long story short, I was talking to my buddy, and he was saying that he would he was actually medicated because let's say he can go into a department store and somebody look at him, yo, what right. you looking at? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you looking atmosphere. at me? And almost getting into a physical altercation. And the guy, like, yo, what, what, what you talking about? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, wow, I've never, you know, really heard that before. But um, I'm working on a project where, you know, we're going to uh, sit down with some officers and, you know, examine PTSD. Uh, what is it? Do you have any, you know, any any symptoms? And and you know, just a lot of people just just want to talk and just get get um get those thoughts out of their head because it's almost like you know putting it in a in a closet. Right. Then yeah. you, when you open it up, it's like wow, this six hours just don't went by, but I had to get that out. Right. And it, uh, it was you had told Heather that you had estimated yourself that you probably witnessed at least an assault every day. Oh, yeah. That every you time worked I, yeah. 12 years. Yeah, every um, time I put my uniform on um, for 12 years, somebody was getting uh, cut, stabbed, uh, physically, mentally abused. And, right. you know, it, it actually... I feel like that must add up in your own mental beat. It does. Only adding on to the fact of that atmosphere that you just discussed. Mm-hmm. And actually justifying that atmosphere as yeah. to having to really be on your guard at all times and things oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. But just those graphic, you know, you'd said you're a 60s baby and grew up with Vietnam, probably on the TV all the time. Mm-hmm. The stories. I can still it. remember Walter Cronkite. You know. Right. Uh huh. And do you think that that played into it or did you see that when you went to sleep? I mean, I don't know. But, um, you know, even, even talking with um, Shabazz. You know, I went to his home, and he's talking about Vietnam. I was like, wait a minute, what, what's the connection here? And, um, you know, just looking at, you know, what the soldiers go through with war. You know, you're in there with buddies. We're black, white, Hispanic, Jewish, just all together, one team. And that, that's, that's who we were. And then, you know, looking at it as a, let's say, a military operation, you know, we was just cast into a system to keep people from hurting one another, mm-hmm. you know, because um, if you remove the correction officers, it would just be fighting, stabbing, mm-hmm. killing people. It would just be a um, unsafe and humane environment, right. you know. Without so you can imagine without the office, with us there, and we had select few that we had a team together. When we when we was there, there was no violence. When we were not there, there was violence. So you can imagine if you remove that element from that system. You know the, um, the 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 day-to-day violence that would that would continue, and you know, almost like like a fight club every every second, every second. And how much did it drive you to try to? I imagine, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here that a prison guard might see it their job differently than a jail guard in terms of your job is to stop short-term violence right now happening in front of me. Yes. Well, a prison guard might be able to build longer-term relationships with someone who. Uh, will or will not get out at some point to be rehabilitated. Was rehabilitation a big part of something that you yes. tried to foster? Both questions are yes. And, you know, trying to keep people from hurting one another, that was priority one. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, you was uh, assigned to supervise. It could be 66 individuals. It could be 100 different individuals. You had a post. Now, if someone got hurt, while you're supposed to supervise that post, you had to write a report. Where were you when so-and-so got hurt? What did you see? And, you know, basically um, you have accountable. 
And, you know, if it, if it was bad enough, they would, you know, take statements from detainees, 25, where was Officer Steele when, the, when this incident happened in the day room? So, you know, you had that element that, you know, we were, um, you know, subjected to, but that's just, you know, just basically part of the job. Right. Mm-hmm. So the good officers, sorry to cut, so the good officers were the ones that kept the violence down. Mm-hmm. No violence. Right. It was a disrespect if two individuals had a fight Just, yeah. on your tour mm-hmm. in my steady housing unit. I could see that, yeah. And a lot of people don't see it that way. But if you know you sit back and reflect, the majority of the detainees or inmates would want an officer that was hard but fair. Right. And what I mean by hard but fair, at that time, you know, every detainee was allotted six minutes on the telephone. So imagine having 50 individuals, two phones, everybody's allotted six minutes on the phone. Now, depending on the strength of that officer, if he was strong or if he was weak, determined the violence in a housing unit. So my Everybody housing wants unit, more than their six minutes. More than six minutes. Yeah. So you can imagine if, you, if, if my housing unit, everybody got to use the telephone. And there are times you have to force people to use the telephone because you had the strong guy in the housing unit that if you touch that phone, I'm going to cut you, I'm going to stab you. So what you know what I would do and others would do, everybody has to touch the phone unless the phones don't come out. So now you see the little Spanish guy, the little, oh, little, I see little black guy, the mm-hmm. old timer, come out, use the phone for six minutes. Then after that, everybody used the phone. Then... Y'all could do what y'all want to do, because what 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 that um what that does is it keeps the violence down. Because that individual that can't use the phone, the only way he's gonna get on that phone is to stab or cut somebody. So it took a, it took a lot of years to fully understand that the type of officer that was um, in charge of supervising that area mm-hmm. determined the violence mm-hmm. in that in that unit. Right. Just the way you picked up that pen while saying the word stab, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> go against those. Um, but so how often were you able to feel like you made a connection beyond that short term, just proving that you are tough but fair um, to really make meaningful co- connections? Because I know that's something you worked with kids before you went in. Mm-hmm. You work with kids now after as part of your uh, work with your art and whatnot. Mm-hmm. How I assume that must have been a priority for you. Obviously, priority one is danger and safety. Safety. Um, How often were you able to build connections and feel like you made a difference in someone's life beyond just keeping them safe for a day-to-day basis? Oh, that was the the, the key for a good, successful officer's interpersonal communication skills. You have to know who you're supervising. I'm a dean at uh, Invest Collegiate um, Charter School, and... I function the same way as a correction officer. Right. You know, um, safety first. You know, proactive. I want to stop a situation before somebody gets hurt. So that's how I think. But the average person don't doesn't think like that. They'll think, oh, somebody got hurt. How did they get hurt? Where, where were you when they got hurt? But nobody wants to, you know, be held accountable for that. But that's that's just how I think. But when I was um, on Rikers Island. There was a unit, special unit called Institute for Inner Development, where you had select officers that were chosen by the deputy warden. You want to work in a program house? You had steady days, 7 to 3, 3 to 11, and the midnight tour. And, of course, because you wanted the steady days. But what that housing unit did was 
my housing unit was the first unit in the United States to house adults and adolescents. So if you could imagine a dorm area, 50 to a north side, 50 on the south side, 50 adolescents, 50 adults, they had the adults mentoring to the adolescents. Mm -hmm. And you had the select officers were running group, life skill groups. So you can imagine six o'clock in the morning, you had 50 chairs, everybody sat around the chair, and you know we did life skill groups. And that same <clears throat> unit before the program used to average 40 to 50 razor slashings a month. When we came in with the program, it went from 40 to 50 to zero for years. Wow. So you could imagine an adolescent during that time, or adult, that could just come in and, and focus on getting out, how am I going to get out, what I'm going to do when I get out, instead of am I going to get cut, stabbed, or somebody's going to throw hot boiling water on me while I sleep, mm -hmm. sleep at night. So um, we saved lives. We saved a lot. You know, we we heard a lot. Right. But um I could you know, I could I could take it to the grave that um you know, that where I was at, you know, we we, we helped a lot. We mm -hmm. saved a lot of people's lives. Yeah, and I think you see that a lot in, you know, whenever you're reading or you're hearing conversations just like this one, that the best way to deter violence behind the walls is to preoccupy everybody. Mm -hmm. Whether through any program, whether it be furthering education or a mentoring program like mm -hmm. that, I, I don't, I don't really know if how, I mean, if work programs are mm -hmm. super effective. Got to keep them busy. Yeah, but, yeah, you have to, have to, busy, have to yeah. stay busy. Because when, when you start watching that, and I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this later. Anyway, Talk to but, me. Uh, but when you start watching this stuff on TV, um, you know all the reality shows and stuff where where they're trying to show you what goes on in jails. Taking cameras into the jail, yeah, like, right, cut, right. taking the uh, special units, yeah, cutting everything. Yeah. we need you to act. They're just acting. Yeah, and they, but they they uh, they're showing you essentially that bad things will happen when you have violent offenders together, and then there's just nothing for them to do. Mm -hmm. They're just hanging out in a room, mm -hmm. and it's because partially like almost exactly like what you're saying, what you were saying earlier, when you're in that kind of environment, you have to play big dog or somebody yeah. is going to try and, mm -hmm. and one-up you on something. Mm -hmm. But like like I was um, sharing before, that depended on the offices. Yeah. Because we because, had... Yeah. If units. you don't respect the guy in charge, you ain't going to get in trouble, yeah. so fuck him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's what happened if, you know... We had units that didn't have a program house. Mm -hmm. The officer was the program. Kept them in line, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. you violated mm -hmm. my rules, and it, it could have been, you know, don't just think that you had to be the biggest guy in the jail. Mm -hmm. We had females, five, four, hundred pounds, you know, just demanding respect mm -hmm. um, and working with adults. Yeah. You know, when we walk down this corridor, the corridor's a quarter of a mile long. I don't want to hear no noise. And you can imagine a little, a little short, little female, all you hear is the... Just little sneaker box and the, the pants going back and forth, but she demanded respect. Yeah, and um, so it didn't, you know, really had anything to do with size or anything yeah. like that. It, it just goes back to the respect and what she gave out, you know, to the individuals. You know, you're going to be here. You know, um, you don't want to take extra time with you upstate. Yeah, because at that time the violence was so high that they came up with a plan to start rearresting people. 
You were there adding so charges means, on. So imagine being imagine being in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. getting snatched up and all uh, stop and frisk. You know, right. New York City that was heavy big stop in, and frisk. Yeah, big so imagine York, just yeah. being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now you're on Rikers Island because they got to fill the quotas and got to fill them beds. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, somebody wants an object that you have on clothing. Mm-hmm. And now you defend yourself and pick yeah, up a shank or razor here. blade and oh, you stab work, yeah. somebody. Mm-hmm. Now you done picked up a one to three. Now you're going upstate. Mm-hmm. So that one to three could turn into five to ten to 25 to where you're never coming home. Yeah. A lot of people don't really look at it like that. You know, once you set foot through that door or just because that judge tells you six months or one to three. You think you could yeah. You're not that. guaranteed. And there's there's one no of, guarantees yeah. that it's going to be a one to three. And that's like the highest danger when it comes to tactics of missing of mass incarceration, yeah. specifically with mm-hmm. the stop and frisk. Yeah, is just loading up people into a place that's mm-hmm. overbearing on the court system, so yeah. that they can't try the cases, which makes uh, lower income people who can't post bail stay in there longer, mm-hmm. get them into adverse situations that get charges tacked mm-hmm. onto them because they were just trying to live their life, just like if. Just like if you got arrested stealing toothpaste rather than if you got arrested stealing like liquor or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That those two things, and I know that those are that's just a one example, but mm-hmm. I'm saying like those two completely different things puts everybody in an even playing field mm-hmm. in a bad place. Yeah. Right. It was Khalif Browder was in Rikers, right? Oh wow, yeah. And he was, was the one who stole a backpack and was in Rikers for years. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um what was it when was it that you started started to see the the system itself is poisonous. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Okay. Um, when I first came through the system, didn't know anything about the system. You know, we didn't have any TV shows. I'll, I'll be 58 in July. So we just had 13 channels, no cable, mm-hmm. no hip-hop at that time. Okay? And so, you know, we didn't know anything about jail, nobody in my You watch family. Oz? <laughs> yeah. I think that is how so many people were... Actually introduced to the prison system, but yeah. completely different mm-hmm. story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, so um, not knowing anything about the system going in, um, rap first came out, and I'll never forget. Uh, I started learning about the prison system and the system itself. Listening to Public Enemy mm. and KRS One, they would throw certain things in their lyrics, and then I started picking up books and reading, because you know, eight hours you're in. An environment, you're looking at 50 people, you have to do something. So I used yeah. to, my higher learning, believe it or not, came from jail. Yeah. So I could be reading a book and got a, a guy come over, hey, what you reading? Come on over. He got a book. He's a Mason. He's a Shriner. Mm-hmm. He's a 5%er. He's a Christian. He's a Muslim. And now you, you got a whole circle mm-hmm. of, of, you know, detainees and, and officers just reading and, and just building. So that's why, I, that's how I obtained my higher, higher knowledge. And then, you know, started reading and reading. I'm saying, wait a minute, you know. Then that connection came into slavery. And so I said, wait a minute, this is nothing but a plantation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I started really accepting it, it started to become a weight on my back Mm. because um, there were days that I just felt like I was an overseer on a plantation. I'll never forget one day I was out in the the big yard, you know, where the inmates go play. And, um, you know, we were watching them outside, and I just, you know, a thought just came to my head. It was like, yo, what if they rush you and say, hey, you the overseer, mm-hmm. you got the key, let us out, and you, you got to make a choice. But that's how I started feeling towards the end of my 12 years. Mm-hmm. And it became such a burden that there were days where I didn't even want to go to work. 
where if I was on the 73 tour, there was days I'd just sit in my car until 10 o'clock just to go in and I started becoming defiant. I started isolating myself from individuals and I knew something was 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 um happening, but I didn't realize that it was gonna be a time where I would just make that that choice to say, you know what, I don't need to do this no more. Turn to my gun and turn to my shield. And, you know, I left the department after twelve years, no charges. You know, just resigned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not knowing that, you know, that was God just pushing me out because, you know, I've, I've, been, in a, I've been in a vicious place and that he was using me to um, to help actually keep people out. Right. And it wasn't written down and I didn't hear those, but it just kept manifesting. What are you going to do now? I'm, I'm done with corrections. I'm, you know, um, sitting out. I was in New York City, left rack city, sitting in front of the laundromat for months. What am I going to do now? And then I just, you know, I said, listen, I still love children and I love photography. And I, you know, back then I had the, the images was on film, 35 millimeter film. Right. film. Mm-hmm. So they was, you know, collecting dust. And I said, you know what? Um, you know, the thought came to my head. It was like, hey, you know, maybe you can keep some people out. And so um, I turned, I would go into a school. Let's say if you was a principal. Um, no, I'm sorry. I did an article in the Don Diva magazine, and there was a um, an office. I think it was a PAL program, and he called me and he said, "Listen, I got a, got a group of boys. Can you come talk to them?" I think he was in Harlem, and I said, "Sure." Came out and started talking to them, and so I used to take the pictures. I used to blow them up and laminate them. So I would go into the school with about twelve to fifteen different photos and put them on the put them on the board, blackboard. And just talk through the images and just share my experience storytelling and and letting them know you know the consequences of choices and decisions and um that turned into um the principal said, "Hey, you ever thought about being a vendor?" So I said, well, "What the hell is that?" And so they gave me a big book like this, so it almost took me about um I was in the schools close to two years before I even knew what a vendor was, mm-hmm. but I was just giving back. I had to give back because I took a lot out of the system. And, you know, my calling was to to share that information to keep as many people out of the system and, and you know, raising awareness mm-hmm. to the to that vicious system. Right. And um, just in terms of, I, I just had a thought in my head. It ran off, but uh, so I'll bounce to another one. But mm-hmm. just now that you've moved to Charlotte, that was, what, 2008? Uh, it's going on six years. Six years? Uh-huh. Okay. So it's around 2018, 2016, mm-hmm. 17. Um, since moving here, what has the, you were showing art, not only in schools, doing mm-hmm. pop-up displays in, in New York in City, neighborhoods mm-hmm. where you knew that folks were getting locked up at a high rate, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. You moved down to Charlotte. Tell me a little bit about the culture shock and about sort of how things are different. You could, there aren't really high traffic foot areas where you could just set up a, sh- set up shop on a street corner necessarily, and you're not going to get a ton of eyes doing that. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you wanted to continue to spread your work and, and what that process looked like. Okay, moving down to Charlotte, I still had that I still had that drive in me. And so it was just, you know, I'm in a new area now, so um I had to figure out the system down here. You know, I didn't know anything about the grants at that time. So it was just um so I'm trying to figure out what was my I went oh I went to an organization what went to an organization called uh, Trace Sports. And they work with students they work with children that have, you know, have um, 
let's say, um, been going through the court system mm -hmm. and um, some of the kids' ankle monitors and things like that, the, the kids in CMS that bring the guns and the knives, those are the, uh, the children that they work with trying to get them on the right path so they won't return. Right. So Justice I went to that involved, as they say in some of the organizations. Mm -hmm. Justice involved. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I went to them and I said, listen, you know, I got a program and, you know, um, I want to help some kids. And so he was like, hey, we don't have no money. I said, I didn't ask for no money. You know, so um, I did a couple workshops with them. Then that turned into um, working with them on a, on a steady basis. So that got my foot in the door. So I became, um, my first job down here was a um, school associate. And I was in the CMS schools. So um, I was working at uh, Mallet Creek, Mallet Creek High School. That was my first school. And I met an officer, um, SRO um, officer. And I said, listen, man, I told him about the program. This is what I do. And showed him some video clips. And he said, man, I got a, I got a school, man, I, I work with. And it was Turning Point. Hmm. And so um, he called up the principal, and I went over to Turning Point. And, you know, I walked through that door the first time, and I just felt like I was back in jail. Just just the energy that just came out of there and looking at the, the, the young students in jumpsuits and, you know, all of them were in there for something, some discipline that they um, that they did while it was in CMS. And, um, you know, some of the teachers were like, yeah, we got about four groups we went to the work with. You know, they're not going to be attentive and, you know, they're going to be disruptive in this. They tell me everything about the students. And so um, I did four workshops with them. You could hear a pin drop. I had teachers walking by. What's going on in there? But it was the information that they was getting that they never received before. So, you know, I shared with them. I said, you know, you're here for a reason. You know, um, you know God works in mysterious ways. You had to do... Maybe you had to do what you did so you could come here to turn the point to get this information this day a former correction officer come through. And so um, that right there led into um, ooh, a couple of other schools. But then I started getting into uh, funding, Look, you know, looking for funding grants. I, I received two, um, two grants and um, Jumpstart grants. And uh, my first grant, I, I was so happy. And then I started working with an organization called Mecklenburg Council of Elders. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I just call it the grant group. Everybody in there has their 501c3. So I'm learning about the 501c3 because I was just volunteering and, you know, working under other people's grants. So they taught me the business, taught me how to get the 501c3, how to package everything up. And so then that turned into, okay, what's my next chapter? And um, I did a couple um Live exhibitions where I went down to Betty Ford's Road, put the put the artwork on the easels, mm -hmm. people walking by. That's my thing, to go where the right. traffic is. Right. You know, um, Betty Ford Road, Saturday at a certain time, certain people are going to be walking by. So that's where they, they look at the images and things like that. I like to capture them there. Then um, I know the students, the children are going to be in school. So now I got to get into the schools. So I had to figure out how to get into the schools. And like I said before, Turning Point was one of them. And I actually got uh, two schools I'm working with now. April April and May, I'll be in uh, West Charlotte, and I'll be in Mallet Creek mm -hmm. High School with the bus. Right. And the bus idea, believe it or not, I was thinking about a bus in New York City 
almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, you know, because um, I don't like people turning me down. Right. I got artwork. You know, I have I have the, the era. I call it the era of mass incarceration, 1987 okay. to 1999. And you know, so I got tired of getting turned down at the art galleries. Galleries, so, museums, yeah. places that wouldn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't answer your calls. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I said, you know what, let me, um, I'm going to create my own art museum. Mm-hmm. So the thought came in, get a school bus. I'm going to get the money to get a school bus. Right. Something that a door had opened up, and um, a grant had opened up. And believe it or not, I bought the bus with the grant. And so I um, had the bus painted. And um, long story short, you know, it was the first mobile prison art museum, you know, in, 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 in the land. See, folks, fund crime prevention, crime intervention, fund arts. Fund them both at the same time as you can. Cause that's what you do. You made yeah. a mobile prison art museum. Yeah. Um, and this will be your first time in West Charlotte High School, you said, this coming spring? I was in, believe it or not, I was in West Charlotte for a, um, wow, they had an art show at the school. And the art teacher told me to bring the bus by. So I right. brought the bus by, and it was it was phenomenal. Is the art teacher's name Morgan Osborne? Yes. <laughs> she, uh, yes. she commented on the Instagram post of the article and said, his visit to West Charlotte was transformative. Fabulous Thank art. You. Even more important, his message. Oh, nice. Thank That's you. That's awesome. Thank you. So we were just referring to the last time Justin was in here, we're talking to Leandra Garrett and Earl with um, – uh, crisis intervention team that's out there on Beatty's Ford and working oh, in West that Charlotte. That was the last one, not uh, the one. With oh, it wasn't Juan. Earl. It was a, a, it was Juan. Yeah, Juan. Juan. That's yeah. Um, and they are a team that that does real specified crisis intervention. With if a kid does get caught with a gun, then they're going to follow up with him and make sure he's all right. Because usually you get the news story, and then no one cares about what happens to that kid from there, or literal crisis prevention where it's like these kids are beefing and someone gets shot and then they go visit to make sure there's not retaliation, stuff like that. Now, your job is a little bit more broad. How do you approach sort of reaching these kids right off the bat? Like you said, we go into Turning Point, you only had that one chance Mm -hmm. to get into their heads. And then I'm curious if you take more of an educational approach or because I'm assuming that some of these images are very graphic, mm-hmm. is it more of a fear-based approach? With the, with the, let's say with the images, it depends on where I'm at. Mm-hmm. It depends on the, the age group, the population that I'm serving. So all the images don't have to be displayed. Oh, okay. So, so if I'm with the, with the little the elementary kids, I don't have to have to put the, the <laughs> yeah. slashings and, right. uh, and you know, the, the graphic information and you mm-hmm. know, all that stuff. I can still tell a story yeah. to any type of um, any age group. You know, basically say it's um, age and group appropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. And you do do a lot of, uh, in your, and I haven't been on your bus, but I have rifled through and really zoomed in on every one of the pictures that Grant came and took mm-hmm. on the bus. So I was able to get a grasp on most of the content. But a lot of it is, especially in these days of uh, you know right-wing people pushing back on so-called critical race theory and stuff like that, a lot of it could be seen as controversial in the sense that you're comparing chattel slavery of the past with mass incarceration today mm-hmm. and things like that. And do you... Do you have you re- received any pushback on that sort of uh, comparison? That those sort of not even theories, but just the no, way that you teach the, that. The truth is the truth, right? You know, and and leaving leaving Department of Corrections, I had um, took all my money out of the system, and um, I don't know. The spirit had just led me to Ghana. 
So mm-hmm. I've actually, um, and that's an, another project that I have, I call it Parallel Worlds, comparing uh, slavery to the prison system. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually went to what you call the Elmina Slave Dungeons in Ghana, where imagine a slave fort, basically we can go to any jail and it would be almost the same type of system. You have a receiving room, you have your cells, depending on the population, male population, female population. You got a rec space, yard, and and like that. So, um, yeah, I have that um, that project that I'm actually working on. And there's a powerful book um, by the name, oh, the author's name is Blackman. He did the book on... Um, Oh, gosh. Slavery by another name. Mm-hmm. If anyone has want to get a little in-depth with the information, Slavery by Another Name, he shows you how, you know, um, 1865 on paper, you know, they abolished slavery under mm-hmm. the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, but then it evolved right. into what you have now. It was a yes, but. Yeah. If yeah. you're incarcerated, yeah. and then you can create the black codes mm-hmm. to, to yeah. incarcerate anyone. But it still comes back down to this... Uh, just we have to have a let's say a permanent labor force, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're working ten to thirteen cents an hour. Mm-hmm. So let's you know just keep that. It's a it's a cheap labor force, mm-hmm. you know. Forced, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, not not cheap by choice, right? And to sort of revisit my question uh, about when you get into a situation where you have a group of kids. You're already hearing from these folks that they've already made their judgments almost. Sounds like just talking about the Turning Point Academy mm-hmm. uh, experience. How do you go about approaching that? And, um, you know, we've seen movies like Dangerous Minds where we get the stereotype in our head or Lean mm-hmm. on Me or things like that. Yeah. But you're in the real life situation where I've got to reach these kids in a certain amount of time. That's the, believe it or not, that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes I might have 30 or 40 minutes just to talk to them. So, you know, I just, I just say a prayer. God, just, you know, just give me the words I could tell these children. Let them be receptive to your word and just give them everything I have at the time. You know, just sharing with them. For them to be here, that means they're still alive. You know, for them to be here to get this type of information, the average person is not going to get this information. So you're here for a reason. So now with this new information that you're getting, what are you going to do with this information? Because now you know that once you make a poor choice and a poor decision, these are the consequences and these are the realities that's going to affect you. Not now, but sometimes the rest of your life. Right. And that's that's the hard part. But, you know, just, just moving forward, I could see myself... Um, at, at a school, imagine a, uh, a pre-K to 12 where these children receiving this information from pre-K all the way to 12. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we, we wouldn't have to worry about those individuals right. because, you know, we could break the myths, break the realities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you bring in some of the formerly incarcerated individuals sharing with them. You know, because my story is just, I'm just, you know, my perspective is just as an officer. Mm-hmm. You have somebody... That did 25 years, that's a whole different perspective. Absolutely. You understand? So if, when you have those two dynamics together, and I do that when I do my exhibition sometime, you know, you got the artwork on the wall, but then we're going to have a panel discussion, breakout rooms, where you're listening to someone that did 10 years, 25 years. You know, imagine someone telling you, my mother told me to be inside at 12 o'clock. 20 years later, I wish I would have listened to her because it caused, you know, I was with the wrong people at the wrong time, and right. you know, I got I got locked up. Can't imagine how many times that's almost happened to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Justin grew up in New York, and he could have been right there. What part of New York? I was up in Catskill. Catskill? Yeah. They got some jails up in Catskill. (laughs) Um, So what are your thoughts on... You're you're approaching this from a level of prevention and reaching young kids at... Education. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts on the abolition movement, which is full of people who would, would say, well... That's all well and good. Let's try to convince them why they shouldn't be in prison, but we want to work towards abolishing prisons as a or the prison system as a whole. When I got my bachelor's, um, I think we had a chapter and it was it was breaking down. You're gonna have a certain percentage of people that are going to break the law. Mm-hmm. It could be point zero zero something. Somebody's yeah. going to break the law. And, you know, there needs to be a place for those individuals that might need a timeout. You know, might be a timeout. But um, but I think what we really need to focus on if is rehabilitation. What does that look like and who's in charge of that? Right. You know, because I can say that um, the only rehabilitation that, you know, I experienced was that unit, the special unit institute for inner development. Right. Then you had individuals that weren't even in the unit, but still, you know, gave that restorative approach to to being to being locked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so um, but it's a business, man. It's, mm-hmm. it's a billion dollar business, yeah. and you know, I share with my, my my children. I said, listen, you know, especially the ones that are going to court. I said, hey. Everybody in that courtroom is getting a check. Mm-hmm. You know, I said for twelve years I got a check two times a month. <laughs> As being a correction officer, my brother did 25 years as a, a police officer in New York City. Mm-hmm. He got he got paid two times a month because somebody was breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I stressed that I said, "Hey, you know, you got to realize some people are depending on you to break the law so they can keep their job." Yeah, right. you know. Yep, absolutely. I agree completely. And then because mm-hmm. well, if you look at some prison systems in other countries that were designed for mm-hmm. like restorative justice and rehabilitation there's definitely options out there but when i hear about like abolish the prison system yeah. i have to think like what mm-hmm. you just said there mm-hmm. if you if we ended the prison system tomorrow there's going to be people breaking the law yeah. there has mm-hmm. to be something already in place mm-hmm. but i mean until until the government finds a way to to uh, dismantle the private prison system. I could never in my life see that happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, yeah. It's, 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 and it's, it's like a billion dollar business. It was yeah. an experience I went through a couple of years ago with a family that I'm very close with in which there was domestic violence, just predator behavior. He was stalking her and was they, this family was in danger and had to leave the state. And it was just one of those situations where there's no, there no solution to this other than taking this man down or putting him in, in somewhere, putting him away. Some uh-huh. folks need to get put away for a little bit. Yeah, because nobody intervenes on in that situation. Nobody intervenes on the person being violent. They right. try to fix the solution for the people who are being targeted, mm-hmm. which to them means upend their whole lives and make everything bad for them, but not for the, for the guy being right. a dick. And do you in any way, have you since moving to Charlotte gotten involved or want to get involved in the jail system in terms of doing work towards improvement or I only ask, I, re- I did a some reporting question. a couple of years ago or I guess maybe a couple of years ago now COVID has really weirded time out, but, uh, 
on some issues in the jail here in terms of McFadden taking over. That was last over. year. That was only 2020? Yeah. No, no, not 22. Oh, uh, maybe it was the year before. 21. It was recent. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of some gu- some former guards in McFadden's administration who were sort of pushed out when he came in as sheriff because they said that he was being too lax with uh, with folks incarcerated there. And I I'd almost had a very... Uh, I could see both sides of the argument in terms of I don't want there to be more carceral. You know, he ended solitary confinement and things that I do support. Mm-hmm. But then there also seeps a lot of stuff they said to me was similar to what you spoke about earlier in this conversation, which was they were not trying to be more punitive and carceral, but they were trying to keep their respect mm-hmm. in a way that kept folks in line and, and mm-hmm. kept the jail operating tightly mm-hmm. and that he was putting people in danger by sort of skewing that. Mm-hmm. Um and I just said all that. I don't know if you have any relation or any work that you've done with Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Office or any experience I, I in did, that. Um, I did three workshops in a juvenile detention center. I think it was okay. the North. And they actually just shut that completely I down. Heard, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we got to ask why. Mm-hmm. You know, the reasons why they're um, shutting it and why is it so far away because... Um, yeah, it's really sad because it's not freeing children or putting them into programs it's mm-hmm. just putting them further from their families yeah and moving them into an adult facility right, right? yeah mm-hmm. or that but usually oh, other thought, counties oh okay yeah. i thought they were just moving them in the same county to mm-hmm. an adult facility but i guess not mm-hmm. yeah i'd like to find out what are they going to do with that space mm-hmm. are they going right. to tear down and make affordable housing or do they expect something to Yeah, that's a good to question. Happen, to look into that. Where is that specifically? It's right off uh, Sunset, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that would be a great place for some affordable yeah. housing. Um, that won't happen. Just <laughs> This is my experience as a reporter here for 10 years. But, um, well, I really appreciate you coming in, man. Well, Ed, hold on. Yeah, so yeah. you're from New York. Are you a Yankees fan? Oh, <laughs> man. You like the Mets? You don't like baseball. You know what it is? Man, I, mean, <laughs> I, I was playing baseball at two years old. Uh, I was always an underdog. Mets. So you were a Red Sox fan? Mets. I'm a Red Sox Mets. fan. And as but much you as know what? When I did like the Yankees, when they had to start over, when they got rid of the G, mm-hmm. when they got mm-hmm. old, mm-hmm. and I said, let me see yeah. the mastermind that's going to put a great team together again. They're working on it right now. They're working on it right now. <laughs> so I, that's when I started becoming a yes. Hey, wait a minute. All right. It ain't about the, it ain't, it ain't it's really about hey. the money. It's no. About Everybody's got money now. Yeah. The Dodgers, yeah. the Angels, your team. Oh, yeah. It's never going to – that never leads to long-term success. I was happy to see just today the Red Sox are ranked 10th as a farm system. So that makes me all right happy. Um, it was it was my first ta- – I got this oh, tattoo when I was yeah. 15. Wow. <laughs> Um, so Chose do you have any life. any events coming up where it's not necessarily just visiting places who will, where folks can come check the bus out, I guess would be the way to put it. Okay. Um, I wish I could leave my email. Um, or but just your website. Oh, yeah. Where can people find you? Instagram, okay, anything like can, that? Um, yeah, he can put I'm your contact on Instagram. in the thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, my email, Lorenzo, L-O-R-E-N-Z-O, Steel, S-T-E-E-L-E, 9741 at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Because I do, um, you know, actual public tours on the bus. Right. You know, I have it in storage right now. And I'm actually, um, the grant money ran out. So I'm actually looking for funding to possibly get it. You know, up and running because it's getting ready to get warm again, and I want to um, get this information out. That's why I'm. That's why I'm launching a um, stop the violence school tour. You know, just just to let just, um, the students know that you know when you pick up that gun and when that bullet goes through that chamber, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people's lives are affected. And you know, um, I say that because 
I've talked to individuals that were 17, 18 years old looking at 25 years in jail, hmm. not realizing the consequences and asking me, what is upstate really like? Right. You know, just so acted off no, of emotion. Yeah. Just for off one emotion, second, they can't take one back. One second, can't take back. And so those stories, those stories still haunt me. So when I'm talking to those, those, um, those students that, that feel like carrying a gun is going to keep you safe, you know, um, that's not true. Because you have police officers that have bulletproof vests, guns, and they're still getting killed and, you know, like that. So it's just a misconception. And we can, you know, tie that into mm-hmm. the music. Mm-hmm. That listen to. I'm a first generation rap. Mm-hmm. You know, I was around when rap music came out, and I I still remember the messages. They were positive messages, mm-hmm. and you know what's going on now is these these children are being brainwashed into thinking that you know to be successful you got to be a drug dealer and and to carry a gun. And um, and everything that goes with it, you know, I've analyzed videos and you know do what do you call it uh, content, um, content analysis and looking at the lyrics and and watch you know torturing myself to watch a rap video. So wait a minute, and then you know you then you include the video games, the violent video games. Mm-hmm. Then they wonder why these these kids are carrying guns and you know your school shootings and all this stuff is connected but nobody's teaching them the consequences of right. you know that individual that makes that poor choice um that pulls that trigger and w- what it's going to be like day to day in jail for you if you make that poor right. choice so that's that's basically my uh, my message that I get out to you know to individuals but um you know my email I gave you my email and I give you all information that you need and I do public tours, and you know you're gonna be seeing the, the bus around. I've been on your website too. What's, what's the uh, address? The website. Um, Search behind these prison walls, and you'll yes. find out his book that he read, mm-hmm. uh, wrote, mm-hmm. and uh, and all sorts of info. Yeah, behind these prison walls. Webs. W e b s. dot com. Got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Closed out with a with a hot take. I know we can sit here and have another hour long debate yeah. about whether music and movies uh, play the <laughs> yeah. role, but he he came out hot because uh, I had my anecdote ready for you. that. Uh, I'm a, I just turned thirty. Oh, you're a baby. Yeah, yeah baby. I'm fifty eight. <laughs> thirty six here. Oh wow, I'm the, I'm the oldest one in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming on I here. Appreciate you allowing me to keep up with uh, where you're at on the bus and mm-hmm. come check it out one of these mm-hmm. days for sure. But uh, I appreciate you coming and chatting with us. That was a great conversation. Thank you, yeah. thank you, thank, thank you. you. All right, cheers. All right. you turn to stay in touch with the city around you broadcast news isn't what it used to be and commercial radio doesn't scratch that itch if only there was one place you could get it all when you want wherever you want on your schedule there is the queen city podcast network listen to your city on your schedule at queencitypodcastnetwork.com and everywhere you get your podcasts QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.